Lately, it seems that we're getting more and more confused about what a church actually is. So let's take some time to set the record straight. Church is not a building, though a building can be used by a church. Church is not a denomination, though a set of beliefs should be important to a church. Church is not about Sunday, though a church should not forsake meeting together. Church is not about one person or personality, though every church should be pastored. And church is not about size or growth, though every church is called to make disciples. So don't think of church as an address or a location, but rather think of church as mobile and on the move. Don't think of church as something built or planted, but rather think of church as something deployed. Don't think of church as where you are for an hour each week, but rather what you are every day of the week, because the church is the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Feet shouldn't sit still. Hands shouldn't be idle. Feet go. Hands do. This is the church. Church isn't what you're sitting through right now, because you are the church. Now go and be the church. Good morning. We're continuing our series on the church this morning. And I want to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're going to start there and we're going to look at something very wonderful today, something glorious in the history of mankind. We're going to look at the actual birth of the church. When was the church born? What happened when the church was born? And why was the church born? Those are things that we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks together. You're turning to Acts chapter 2. Now, just for a minute, think about this for, for a minute, if you will, with me. What really is church? We just had some, some uh, maybe inspiring thoughts, maybe some challenging statements in our introduction video, really looking at what is the church. Now, just for a minute, okay, I'm giving you a second to get there, just for a minute, imagine church as something that you've never heard of, never seen, and you don't know about. Now, that's, that's quite an exercise especially for those of us that have grown up in church or you've been part of church for a long time. I understand, but guys, just for a moment, with me, try really hard to take out all those things, those preconceived notions and ideas that you have, what church really is to you. Take, take it all out of your mind. And if we could go all the way back to the source, we looked at the origin last week and the birth this week, what would church look like through fresh eyes? What would this thing called church really be if all we had to define it was what we read in the Bible. We didn't have years of history and, and, and all the stuff that we know in our own experiences, but we just simply went back to the original source and thought, well, there's this thing called church here in the Bible, and what does the Bible say about that? And sort of reset our understanding of what the church is. Can we do that together? Can we reset our view? Can we, can we just sort of put aside our notions and just look at it freshly? And, and, and if, if what we think or what we expect of church doesn't necessarily line up with what the Bible's going to tell us, then we'll go ahead and change what we think and what we expect so that it lines up with what we read out of God's Word. Resetting our view, our expectation, our understanding of what the church really is. That's what we're going to do this morning together. As we go back and look at the birth, it'll show us something very significant about the purpose of the church. You understand, I hope, that the, the church came on the scene in the world in a dramatic fashion. It's, it's like God making a very profound statement. Things changed when the church of Jesus Christ was brought into existence when it was born, there was radical change that took place. There was a glorious event in the timeline, in the purpose, in the plan of God. So we're going to go look back and say, what is it that God was doing when he created this thing called the church? Why is it there? What was this dramatic change? Why are things so radical in reference to this thing called the church, the glorious birth? We'll look at part one this morning together, and that'll be the first part, the first front of your outline card. And then next week we'll look at part two, and we'll go back and finish it. Do it into two parts so we can take our time. And I really want this morning's message to be encouraging to you. Because I know that there are a lot of people that have been part of church life, and maybe you've heard it on TV and the radio, maybe you've been part of it, and it's not always been good. And there's a lot of people out in our community, some of us here today, and we have sort of a distaste 
when it comes to some parts of the church. And, and sometimes we, we don't really know how we fit in or what the church really is or what our place is in the church. And here's what I want you to see this morning, church. I want you to know that God has really wonderful things in store for you in relationship to his church. The church is, is a blessing and it's a place for you to discover things that you need that will fulfill you, that will bring joy, purpose, meaning, that will help you to live out your salvation and walk with God. And you'll know peace and joy as you find your identity and your place in his church. So be encouraged, even if you've never been part of church before. There's a place for you, and I want you to see that today. What is God really doing in this thing? Now, we're going to go to the book of Acts, and you know, that's sort of the the historical account following Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And we're going to see the the context in which the church was born. Now, I'm going to back up. You're in Acts 2. I'm going to back up to chapter 1 and give a little context here. You can read with me if you want to. Otherwise, just listen. Chapter 1 and verse 4, it says, And being assembled together with them, he, that's Jesus, commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, this is Jesus, you understand. He's, a, he's about ready. He's been, he's been killed, buried, raised from the dead, and now in his glorified form, he, he's literally existing and walking in their midst, and he's been there for some time, about 40 days. And this is what he's saying. Okay, now, guys, now that you have trusted in me, forgiven, uh, been forgiven of your sins because of my death, now listen, there's something very significant that's going to take place. And he tells them, I want you to wait here for the promise that's coming, and we know that promise is the coming of the Holy Spirit. They're going to be baptized. They're going to be immersed and and filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says, just wait right here. Where? In Jerusalem, where they already were, for the significant event that's coming. That was Jesus' instruction. Now, the disciples' response to that is very revealing to us. It's helping us to put this into context. Watch their response in verse 6. Therefore, when they had come together, that's his disciples, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Now wait, hold on, time out. You see what they're saying here? They know, having been Jews and understanding what God is doing and what he has promised, they know that when the promise of Messiah comes, that there's also a related promise of the Messiah setting up, establishing a kingdom, a kingdom of God. And this is a kingdom where if you're a, a Jewish person uh, of Hebrew origin, then you also know that this kingdom has a very special place for you as the Jewish people. And so they're waiting, of course they're under Roman rule, they're waiting to be delivered earthly in this kingdom that's coming, the kingdom of God that's coming, and they know it's associated with Messiah. So when they see Jesus as Messiah now, they say, oh, okay, now you're here as Messiah, you've already died, been buried, raised from the dead, now must be the next step in God's overall plan of creation. Now is the culmination of what God has been doing since the beginning of time, this coming kingdom that's to come. Is it now, Lord? And Jesus' answer tells us. Look at verse 8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Look what he's saying. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons. What you need to know now is, that instead of worrying about the coming kingdom, you need to worry about the next step. The next step is, you will be filled with the Holy Spirit, and when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you, now, the season for being witnesses unto me, all throughout the earth. That's the next step. That's the next phase in God's overall sovereign plan on the world. You see it? He's telling them right then. In a sense, he's saying, no, just worry about what's next. What's next is I told you to wait right here until the Holy Spirit comes. Do you see with me, guys? I want you to see this. Do you see how significant the coming of this promised Holy Spirit is? If you see it, do like this. Do something. Let me know that you're with me today. All right, you see it? There's something huge coming something significant. The stage is being set 
for a glorious event that Jesus is saying, wait, 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 it's coming, not yet, wait, almost, not yet, hold on, wait, just wait right there. Here it comes. And it's this promise. Now, we skip over to Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. That's what Jesus told them to do. That's what they were doing. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How was it that, that we hear each in our own language, which we were born? Wonderful, mighty event. It's so, it's so dramatic, they didn't even understand what was happening. It was so dramatic in nature that there, there were things that would be revealed and, and understood in the days, weeks, months, and even years to follow. But here's where it led. You see, the coming of the Holy Spirit came. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. You know that Peter got up, preached a message of the gospel. And I want you to skip all the way over to, to verse 40. And it says, with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayers. Boy, I love this. Verse 46, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the, Now watch this. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And the Lord, at, you see, there's a church. There it is. Well, when was it born? The moment the Holy Spirit came and rested and fell and filled those that were there, and then as a result, those who listened trusted Christ and received the Spirit themselves, that was the birth point of the church. That was the entrance of what was called the church. And remember Matthew 16, the Lord said, I will build my church. He already added 3,000 souls on day one and then continued to add more. He's already building his church. Everything is there that they need to be a church right then and there at the birth point. Now, in order for us to really fully understand what it means for them, what it means for us as the church, there's something that I want to show you. You know, when Jesus told them, hey, wait right here in Jerusalem until the coming promise, you know, that wasn't very difficult for them to do. These were Jews, in a sense, Messianic saved Jews at the time, but they were still Jews. And the Jews at this time were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate a feast, a festival. We know it as Pentecost. The Jews then knew it as the Feast of Weeks. And if you know anything about the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of the Weeks, it's one of seven great feasts that the children of Israel have. It's also one of three of those feasts that are called pilgrim feasts, which means everybody comes to the temple at the time as pilgrims to celebrate this feast. So you can imagine the population, they just had Passover. Remember, Jesus died at Passover. He was the Passover lamb. And in Jewish culture, you start on the second day of Passover and you count 50 days and on the 50th day is the Feast of Weeks. That's why we call it in Gentile language Pentecost. Penta meaning of five, penta 50. 50 days later, Pentecost happens. So here's all the Jews. Now guys, it's a little bit technical, but you got to stay with me today to see this. They're literally already there waiting for Pentecost. And Jesus says, wait until the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, they're waiting. They're there for Pentecost as devout Jews. They're also waiting because Jesus said, stay right here and wait. And chapter 2, verse 1 said, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord and in one place. So, 
I submit to you this morning that there is something very significant about the church being born on the day of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. And so what we want to do is really peel back the layers and say, well, what does the Feast of Weeks really mean? And why was it, why is it that the church birth comes out of that festival and not any of the others? And just like the Feast of Passover, we're going to see that there are many implications and things for us to learn today. Are you with me? Now, that was a teaser, so you should be, you should be hanging on the edge of your seat right now. If you're not, then I failed. I'll have to do it over again. Okay, so now you're hanging. You're with me? All right, so what we want to do is look at the Feast of Pentecost itself. Pentecost, okay? We're going to call it Pentecost for the purpose of our study. And first, we're going to look at the meaning of Pentecost. The meaning of Pentecost itself. And then we'll find its context here. Now, turn with me, if you will, all the way back in the, New Test- or the Old Testament to Leviticus. I know that's your favorite book in the Bible. Leviticus chapter 23. We're going to take a look at this feast and break it down, its meaning. So, the Feast of Pentecost, guys, Pentecost, is essentially a feast of a harvest. It's a wheat harvest. There are two harvests in Jewish life. The first one was the first fruit. That was back during the time of Passover. And this is the second one, later in the summer harvest, called the wheat harvest, or the grain harvest. God himself commanded that this harvest, this feast, be celebrated. Now, you're in Leviticus chapter 23, and I'll save you and spare you from reading too much of Leviticus this morning, but but I do want you to see this. Look at verse 15. God says to the people, and you shall count for yourselves from the day after Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Okay, hold your finger right there. Time out. What's he saying here? He's saying, you shall count seven Sabbaths. That's seven weeks. From the time, he says, where they wave the sheep offering, which is the second day of Passover. So after the second day of Passover, count seven weeks of seven days. Seven times seven is 49. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. And then he goes on and tells them specifics about what they would do in this feast and this festival. You see, he's saying, when Passover happens, on the second day, count 49 days, and then on that next day, the 50th day, bring in first fruits from the harvest and celebrate Feast of Weeks. Now, I want to show you this. This is, this is literally in Leviticus. You can, you can read it later if you saw. This is literally where God outlines all seven of the feasts for the people of Israel, for the cho- chosen people, right? So he's showing them. Now, I want to just a little introduction about the feasts, and then I'm going to do a little physical illustration here, and then we're going to move on. The feasts of God are hugely significant in the life of Israel. Now, watch this. This might be new for you, but also in the life of the church. In the life of Israel, they are highly celebrative. The feasts are designed to celebrate what God has done in the past. They're, they're to remember. They are representative of what God has done in the past. But we also learn as we study the scriptures as the, in the church view that feasts aren't just representative of the past. They're also predictive of the future. They celebrate what God has done in the past, but they also paint a picture of what God intends to do in the future. Each of those feasts has a fulfillment in God's plan in the future. We know that to be true, for example, because Passover. If you were with us last Sunday evening and we celebrated the Lord's Supper's communion together, we did it in the context of Passover, you remember? And Jesus is the Passover lamb. It's to celebrate their deliverance from Israel. When they passed under the blood, the lamb was slain. That's celebrating for Israel in the past. Are you with me? But it was also predictive of the future, the future event, when the, the Lamb of God would come and be slain for the sins of mankind. And we would be delivered from slavery, from bondage of our sin by the blood of the Lamb. You see that feast, how it has two meanings? Well, all of them have two meanings. So, first of all, let's look at the order. And if you, if you just, like, we're just going to briefly, I'll run you through it. In chapter 23, he shows the, the seven feasts. 
there's the feast of Passover, then there's the feast of first fruits, or unleavened bread, then there's the feast of first fruits. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits. Then we have our feast we're looking at today, we have our feast called Pentecost. Then we have the feast of trumpets, the feast of atonement, and the feast of tabernacles. Okay, so there's all seven of them. Now, that's the order in which they're revealed. They're chronological. They're celebrated throughout the year in that order. And they're also chronological in the events that they predict as they unfold. So let's do that. i got some volunteers that are helping me today. If you're one of my volunteers, would you come up now? i got these guys. We'll wait for them. They're coming on up. And I also need two more. I didn't, didn't get around. So anybody volunteer? I need two people very quickly, if you would. Just some, Okay, yeah, Matt. Somebody else? Go ahead, Brent. Come on up. Run up here. Okay, so if you guys would just line up here, any orders, fine. Great. Okay, now these are our feasts. Aren't they lovely feasts? Good looking feasts. Now, if I could take from Pat over you three feasts and move you to this section of stairs, and then for you guys to move over just a little bit, Mike, you're almost there. Perfect. Just right there. Okay, now let's see how the feasts unfolded. God, God sh- revealed them. And put them into place. There's the Feast of Passover. Then there's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then there's the Feast of First Fruits. Then we have Pentecost. Then we have the Feast of Trumpets. And the Feast of Atonement. And the Feast of the Tabernacles. Okay, hold your signs up, guys, if you would. These are our vannas. Aren't they lovely? All right, this is the one time you get to be lovely, Brant, so enjoy it. All right, look at them. There they are, the the seven feasts. Now, what I want to call your attention to is the chronological order and where they are. The first three feasts are remembering the past from deliverance, but also predictive of Jesus Christ's first coming. The Passover, the unleavened bread, and the first fruits are all fulfilled when Jesus comes the first time to die on the cross. Are you with me? Okay, good. Then we have the last three feasts that are celebrated. They are to remember very specific things that God has done in the life of Israel in the past, but they are predictive of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles will all be fulfilled. They're, being pr- they're predicting the time when Jesus will return his second coming. So we have three feasts that show us predictively about Jesus' first coming, and three feasts that show us predictively about Jesus' second coming, there's something missing. There's a middle feast called Pentecost. Now what happens in the timeline and the history of God's plan between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus the birth of the church. Guys, I want you to see this. The church is part of God's overall plan. And it has to do with what God is doing between the ascension of Jesus Christ back to heaven and the return of Jesus Christ back to earth. That's the time and the age and the season and the purpose of God's plan that you and I exist today. That's the time of the birth of the church. You see how important it is? This this has to do with a huge portion of what God is doing on the earth. The church wasn't just births brought into existence so that you and I have a nice place to go to Sunday and get a few things that might help us for the rest of the week and come back and judge how well the pastor did each Sunday. That's not what it's for. It's not for us to enjoy a nice time of singing and to have friends and to be a social club. The church is part of God's overall sovereign, glorious plan to do something very specific, and He needs all of us as part of the church to be doing just that. Thanks, volunteers. You guys can take your signs with you. Keep it for a souvenir. I know that'll bless you. You see it in its, in its context, the birth of the church literally, I mean, how clear can God be, folks? This is what I'm doing. And not only this is what I'm doing, this is how important and significant what I'm doing is. Pentecost. Now, it happened literally 50 days after Passover. That's what God commanded, seven weeks of seven on the 50th day. 
And so they celebrate um, physically, literally, God's provision of the wheat harvest. There's something else that they celebrate. You can ask any Jew. Or you can go back another place in the Old Testament and find out what else happened significantly that was 50 days after Passover. I'm going to show you that as well. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, back to Exodus chapter 20. Now we're going backwards. And we're going to look at Exodus. This is the actual account of when God's people have been delivered from slavery in Egypt into the wilderness. This is where it actually happened. So in history, you're in Exodus chapter 19 and 20 is what we're looking at here. In history, they have already passed under the land. Passover literally has already happened. And unleavened bread and first fruits have passed as well. Chapter 19 and verse 1 says, we'll get to 20 in a second. Chapter 19, verse 1. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. They had departed from Redephim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountains. And Moses went up to God and the Lord, and called, the Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all the people, for the earth is mine. They come to, to the mountain, Mount Sinai. And we know by reading the rest of the account that what happens next is Moses is called up on top of the mountain and God gives him many things. Among those things are two stones inscribed by God with his commandments. The word, the law of God. Now, before we look at that, I want you to see what he says he is doing. Now, on the third month after the children of Israel gone out of the... If you're interested in how the timing works out, let me know. My own personal study and conviction is that this adds up to 50 days after they were delivered. First month to the third month, halfway through to the first week in to the third month. It turns out to be exactly 49 days. And there they are, literally about to receive. On the 50th day, Israel celebrates... The day that God gave his law. He gave his word, his commandments to his people. Now, understand this. Before we see God giving them his commandments, he says something very specific. He said, you, you've seen what I, I've delivered you. I've called you out from slavery. And now he said, if you keep my voice and keep my covenant, if you obey my word, if you live out my word, if you do what my word says, he says, then you're going to be the special people that I intend to use. Now, let me just say up front, I do not believe the church has ever or will ever replace the nation of Israel. That's my personal conviction. I believe the nation of Israel has unique, separate promises as God's special people. And one day they will receive the fulfillment of that promise. But that being said... He has set Israel aside during this age, called the church age, which we saw between the two series of feasts. And during that time, the church has been brought into existence to, in a sense, carry on the mission. The next phase of God's plan. It's oversimplified, I know. But stay with me. He says, in order, watch this, in order for you to be my people and do what I need you to do, I've called you out here. I'm about to give you my word, my laws, my command, my ways. He says, if you will take them, if you will receive them and, and make them part of who you are, then you will continue to fulfill the covenant and I will use you. And we know that they failed and any of us would fail because we're sinners. Thus the need of redemption came. But what I want to show you is the word was given to God's people to be lived out before the rest of the world so that they would know who God is. Hey, 
I wish we had time to do a whole other sermon right here. Just If I could do it very fast and just plug it into your mind real quick, I would. That's what God's doing. God's revealing himself. That's what this whole plan is about. And to do that, he chooses people. And in the Old Testament, under the children of Israel, he gave them his law. And that's where we skip to chapter 20. God spoke all these words saying, I'm just going to read the first couple here. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the command that he wrote on the tablet. Verse 4 says, you shall not make for yourself the carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven or above, or that in the earth beneath, or that is in the water, or underneath the earth. (laughs) Let's just stop right there. The feast of Pentecost, the Pentecost, in Jewish life is about celebrating the fact that God gave them his word. So let's put them all together, specifically what happens, what are the three things that happen in Pentecost? Number one, the giving of the law. Number two, the wheat harvest. And number three, it's a Thanksgiving celebration. It's a Thanksgiving feast. Okay? Now, we're gonna, you see it right here, right? You see where he gave him his word? That's part of it. Here's the three things that you need to know about Pentecost. God gave his law. They were to celebrate the wheat harvest. And it was a time of Thanksgiving for all that God provides. In other words, if God doesn't provide it, we never would have had it. And so we celebrate and are thankful. You with me? Are, are we all caught up? Okay, good. Now, that's literally what happened in the history. Um, but I want to show you the fulfillment of Pentecost. How did it look like when it unfolded in the future? And to do that, I'm going to do something a little bit unusual. You can turn back to Acts chapter 2 if you want to. But I'm going to stop in Exodus again. I'm going to go to Exodus 32. You can go with me if you want or turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to see the fulfillment When God fulfilled Pentecost, when it actually happened, just like when Jesus came to fulfill Passover, there were three radical changes that took place that had to do with its fulfillment. We're just going to look at the first one today, and we'll look at the second two next Sunday. The first one is that the law itself was fulfilled. Now, we're going to see it happen in Acts chapter 2, but before we do that, I want to show you something. In, in uh, where are we at? I said Exodus 32. Look what happened when Moses brought the law back down to the people. Verse 15 of Exodus 32, if you're there, otherwise just listen. Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides, and on one side, on the other side, they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the noise of a shout of victory, nor the noise of a cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. So it was, as soon as he came near the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot. And he cast the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf which they had made, burned it in the fire, and ground it into a powder. And he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. What on earth? Here's Moses up on the mountaintop receiving God's word to take down to the people to show them how to live. How to honor God, how to worship God. And as he comes down with these tablets, he comes down and he finds that they had taken all their gold and, and melted it and formed it into a calf and were worshiping this calf. They were already so empty and so in need. They were already so wayward in their hearts 
They were already so, we don't really care what God says and wants to do. We need and we want to do this. They were already so caught in their rebellion that Moses comes down and he throws down the commandments. And he's like, are you serious? The very picture of God's law coming down on the tablets shows from the very beginning that God's law shows us where we fail. The purpose of God giving His law was to show where they missed Him, where sin was. In verse 25, if we continue the story, Now when Moses saw the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them, to their shame among their enemies, Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever's on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves to him. Look at verse 27. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from the entrance to the entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men fell that day. In, in the Old Testament, in the initial days of God revealing His law, we learn very clearly that when the law of God is on tablets, it brings condemnation and death. It was because God's Word now illuminated, you know, it was the first and second commandment already they were violating, that we read, you shall not form images and worship to them. And there they were. You see, the law exposed and revealed they cannot find God's ways on their own. They are not of God naturally. And the result and the consequence is condemnation and death. Do you see that? When the law of God came on tablets, it brought condemnation and death. And as a result, we see about 3,000 people died, literally, for their sin. Now, turn to Acts chapter 2. The fulfillment of this receiving of God's word happens at the birth of church. The church is being born. Look in verse 40 with me and see the contrast. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. The Holy Spirit had just fallen. He says, Repent of your sin. Then those who, watch this now, verse 41, those who gladly received his word. Hold on, time out. All it takes today, my friend, if you're here today and you're scared because of law and the commandments of God just show how sinful you really are, join the club. All it takes to be delivered from condemnation and death is for you, just like they did in the original church, to gladly receive his word, that is, to accept and believe by faith that yes, Jesus was the Son of God and died on the cross, not for his own sins, but for yours, and if you will receive that, you can be forgiven. Hey, that's the word they gladly received. you got to see this. That is core and central and foundational to the very existence of the church. It didn't have anything to do with church programs. At that point, it didn't have anything to do with the church building. It was about something new. But what was so new that was happening that's so glorious? Those who gladly received his word were baptized, and in that day... 3,000 souls were saved. When the word of God was poured out in the spirit, it brought freedom and life. And it resulted in 3,000 souls not dying, but being saved. Hello. I, I don't expect us as Baptists to have too much emotion, but... Are you, do you believe this stuff? Do you see the fulfillment? Do you see the contrast? When the word of God was given on tablets, the letter of the law, it brought condemnation and death. Woe to man. But when the church was born, when Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection was now available to be gladly received, God's word was poured out by his spirit at Pentecost, and the result, don't miss it, the result was freedom and life. 
And instead of people dying, people were being saved. That's when the church was born. That's why the church was born. Okay, you didn't get too excited about that. Let me see if I can keep going. I'm not giving up until you get excited, church. Hey, when the law is just in your hand, it doesn't have any life-giving properties. But when the law is in your heart, it saves. There's a transformation that occurs from the letter of the law, from the law in the hand, to the spirit of the law, to the law in the heart. And he's pouring his law, literally his ways, into the church for the very same reasoning that he gave his laws to begin with, that you would be now a different special people, that you would now be a church, and I could use you, Israel being set aside. Now I'm using you, church. Watch this. Not to proclaim my law in its commandment form, but to live out my law in your hearts and in your lives so the rest of the world could see who I am. How do we do that? We live out the gospel in our lives. I don't want to go any further right now. I'm very serious, church. That's why we exist. Now for a minute, take take off all your preconceived notions of what church is. Church can be in a building, it may not be. It might have programs, it might not. It might have this program, it might have that program. None of those matter at this point. None of those are essential to the existence of the church. But if we are not as a people, as a body, filled with the Spirit of God, living out the Word of God in our lives so that people around us are being affected by that, being transformed by that power of the gospel, if that is not who we are, listen, we are not being the church. Even if we're meeting in a building, and even if we have a pastor and staff, and even if we have a budget and programs, and even if we teach the Bible. You see what God created the church? You see what was fundamental, what was foundational, what was central when the church was born? God has a plan. And he's unfolding that plan, and he's using you and I. Now, I'm going to start, I'm going to introduce a couple of buzzwords and phrases to you. They're just to help us remember what we just talked about. And we're going to use them as we look at our vision for our church and our next steps. The first one is this. We as a church exist to be a transformed people who transform our world. We as a church exist to be a transformed people who transform our world. Now, that's not a catchy little phrase that Pastor Bud came up with one night when I had too much pizza and had a heartburn. That's not something that I just looked up and saw somewhere. Those are words that I think represent what we just read about the birth and the existence of the church. They were a transformed people. How? By the Spirit of God filling them, by the Word of God coming alive, that they could live it out. And as they do, we saw it happen right there because they they went out and that day 3,000 souls were saved and they continued to do what the Word of God told them to live their lives. And as a result, it says the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So we saw a transformed people living out that transformation cause a transformation in the world around them. Is anybody getting excited yet? I'm I'm trying here. What does it take? Thank you. There's transformation happening. Souls were being saved. The world was being changed by the birth of the church. I submit to you that the existence of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ should be a radical force to be reckoned with in this world. Radical. Transforming. Unstoppable. There should be life and fruit and power and victory all around us, not just in this building, but our lives and in our neighborhoods and in our homes and in our marriages. We're not to be characterized by defeat. We're to be characterized by transformation. A transformed people transforming the world around them. I also want to show you, um, well, if you read a little later in the story, you find out they're a little bit like us and they enjoyed this transformation and, and they sort of piled up in Jerusalem there and enjoyed and, you know, then come to the temple and they had all their tabernacles and little mini temples everywhere in Jerusalem and they were just enjoying that. And God said, no, you remember what I said? You're waiting for this promise so that you can be witnesses to me in Jerusalem. 
and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then everywhere else in the world. So what did God do? The destruction of the temple came about 40 years later, and God kicked them out. He said, this is my image, okay? There's the church, and God said, get out! Go! He mobilized them. Go into the world with this transforming power that you have now. It's not just for you in this small group. So here's my other phrase. We're a church being mobilized to mobilize people because when those people get transformed, then they're supposed to go out and then also take the transformation that occurred in their lives and cause that to transform others by the power of the gospel. Mobilizing, that means we don't just sit here and everything, everything that I know of church happens in this one room. I gotta, I gotta tell you, if that's your life, if everything you know of and experience of church happens in this room and maybe your Sunday school class, you're missing out on the church. You're missing it, folks. I, as good a preacher as I think I am, this ain't nothing. The real power happens when you go out and you're mobilized to go into your life, to your workplace, to where you connect with people, where you rub with the world, and then mobilize them. You see, I I want for our church next year, I want for us to be excited. I want for us to be transformed and, and, and go out into the world. But listen, when you go, here's the expectation. Every single person we reach for Christ will be saved from hell to a glorious work. The glorious work is being part of the church. That they continue to move. See, I don't know 10 lost people. Do you know one? Yeah. Well, they know 10. And then out of those 10, somebody in the one they know, they know 10 that are not saved. Mobilized. To mobilize with the power of the gospel. I want to show you one final thing and we'll close. Turn to 2 Corinthians, if you will. Paul's talking about this to a church. It's the church at Corinth. I just want to show, now, I'm not introducing anything new to you. I'm showing you what we just talked about. Again, at the church at Corinth. Same thing all over again. A transformed people, transforming the world with the gospel. Mobilized with the gospel to mobilize people with the gospel. Chapter 3, see if it sounds familiar, verse 6. Who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. That's us, the church. Ministers of the new covenant. Now watch. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills and the spirit gives life. Hello. Does that sound familiar to anyone? I just want to make sure that I did it right. Because it should sound familiar. The tablet... The letter in hand kills, brings death and condemnation. But the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that now the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory in his countenance, which was glory passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be much more glorious? That's, by the way, the title of the message this morning is A Glorious Birth. If if, if that was glorious when he came down with the Ten Commandments, how much more glorious is it now that it lives in your heart and your life? Verse 9, for if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. That's who we are. That's where we live. Exceeds much more in glory. Now, skip down to verse 17. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, freedom. But with, with all, but we all, with unveiled, unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Therefore, since we have this ministry, what ministry? The ministry of being transformed into the same image of Christ from His glory to His glory in our lives. The transforming power of becoming part of the church, of being born again. That's our ministry. Skip to verse 6. 
For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's put it all together. He says, church, if God giving his law and bringing down his revelation of his word to Moses was glorious, how much more glorious is it now that God has given it to you inside your hearts by the Spirit? And now it's bringing life so that your life, watch it, watch it, watch it, so that your life is now a ministry of reconciliation, of of propagating the gospel, of revealing the transformation that God does. That's, That's who you are. You're a vessel that reveals the transformation from glory to glory. And then he wraps it all up by saying this. You remember last week we talked about the origin of the church? And I went all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, and I said, God created light. It's an illumination of who he is so that he can reveal himself to creation. He created light before he created the sun, moon, and the stars to govern light. For is, it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Now you see how insignificant the church is in God's overall plan? He created light to reveal his glory. Paul's saying, church, isn't it glorious that that same God who created light in order to reveal himself to creation now reveals that very same light in you? Now listen to me. Close in just a second. How are you living your life? I'm I'm just going to say it, okay? I know we all struggle with it, so we hold one another's hand with grace and mercy, and we try to do this together. And sometimes we stumble. But listen to the purpose. The purpose of your life is not to build a career. It's not to save up a retirement. It's not that club or that hobby all these things that I struggle with and do and invest in all week long those are all fine well and good but listen those are not the purpose of why you exist right now right now the only reason you are in this room living and breathing the only reason is because God wants to use his transforming grace and love in your life as you live it to transform the rest of this world that's it that's it your job and your hobbies and and finances, all those things are are parts and tools and pieces of your life, but they should all, all of them, fall under your identity with the church. God loves the church. This is why you exist. This is first and foremost your identity in Christ. The redeemed. Transformed people to be living out your transformation so that the rest of the world is transformed. That's who we are. Let's pray. God, thank you for calling us by grace. Not of works, not of our own ability, but by your love, you sent Jesus Christ, your son, to die on the cross so that each one of us can be forgiven, be recipients of your glory, and live out our life for you. And I wonder if you're here this morning and just praying together. I wonder if it has occurred to you You never personally understood that and gladly received the word of the gospel that Jesus died for you. And maybe you've never been part of church or maybe you've been trying to do church without first receiving all that he pours into you so you can live out his word and be forgiven. And if that's you this morning, may I give you the opportunity to gladly receive the truth that Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood for your sins. Gladly receive right now. Pray with me. I trust you, Jesus. Your death on the cross was for my sins. And I believe 
forgive me of my sin. As you're praying, church, I'm just going to, you know what? I'm just going to open up the response time. This is a time where we respond to God's word. And however God lays it on your heart to respond, if you'd like to come forward to the altar and spend a moment in prayer or commitment, it's open. This is your altar, your place as the body of Christ to come and do business with God. However you want to respond this morning, please be faithful, church. Just respond in some way. What has God spoken to your heart? Altar's open. Come if the Lord leads you. Lord, I just want to come and thank you this morning. For the glorious birth of the church that I am part of. And I come to the altar to thank you. So thanksgiving. Or, Lord, I come to you this morning... I want to be your living word in my life. Let your word come alive in me and bring transformation. Perhaps you're praying and your response this morning is, God, I want to be transformed this morning. I've been holding on to something and I need your transforming power. I need healing, forgiveness, closure. Lord, we thank you for being so glorious to create and birth this church, us, your people. And we're glad to be your people. We're honored to be your people. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, church. You can look this way. Can I call your attention to this response card? Pastor Matt referenced to it earlier. If you just take out one of these cards there in the seat pocket in front of you, Hopefully you've had time to put your name, other information on the front. Then we're going to put these in the offering plate in just a moment. Guys, they're going to help with the offering. Would you come forward? Come on, guys, forward. And this is what we do, folks. On the back of that card, you have the opportunity to write some kind of response out to God so that you put in these offering plates, your tithes and offerings, as God calls us to do and blesses us to do. But you also put in this offering plate your response. Lord, here's my worship. I give you my life. I give you my obedience. I give you my life. And you put something in there as well if you wish. If you're interested in baptism or learning to know more what it means to be a member of a church or to know Jesus Christ, please mark those on the back of the card as well. We'd love to help you with those steps. Pastor Joe, would you lead us in prayer? Our Father, surely you have come down. Surely you have filled our hearts. Some of us too, overflowing. Lord, we know that the word that we've heard this morning is is a word that sends us out, not intended to just fill us up and let us sit, but for us to go. Thank you, Father. Holy Spirit, show us the way. Lead us in it and take us forward. And Father, as we come now to give of our tithes and offerings, we think of that which you gave. And we realize that we have little. But we know that whatever we have, you can and will use. Thank you, Father. Thank you, dear Dear Jesus, thank you, Holy Spirit.
come now and gather your gifts, our offerings, to yourself. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.